Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Welcome, everybody, to this month's episode. And we have a very special interview. I know I say that a lot, but this is one we've been waiting to do and hoping to do for a long time. Eva interviewed... Vanessa Carter, who is a patient and patient advocate of AMR on the 24th of May this year. And it's a really inspiring interview for me, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome back to the AMR studio. Today, it's my pleasure to sit down here to talk with Vanessa Carter, a very well-known in the AMR field patient advocate. And we are going to hear her story and a little bit of the work that she has done and a little bit of the work that is coming up into the future. Uh, please, Vanessa, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, sure. Hi, Eva. Thank you so much for having me and for the warm introduction. Yeah, I'm a patient advocate, originally from South Africa and uh, now situated in the UK. Um, and my focus is obviously on antimicrobial resistance. To put everyone on the stage of your story with AMR, I know this is deeply personal, but you have experience with uh, dealing with a very resistant infection. Can you tell us your story? Yes, sure. So when I was about 25 years old, I was involved in a very serious car accident in Johannesburg in South Africa. And basically what happened was a car overtook us on the wrong side of the road, hit into our car, you know, nearly hit into our car. We went into a violent spin and we ended up hitting very badly into a concrete wall. And so I had injuries all over my body. I had abdominal injuries. That was caused by the seatbelt. And also I was sitting slightly wrong. So I hit my face on the dashboard, which didn't have um, airbags. And I was taken out of the car. I was put on the side of the road and I was resuscitated and taken to the closest public hospital in Johannesburg, which at that point in time was Charlotte Makseke Academic um, Hospital. And they did a lot of surgeries. I had massive facial injuries, broken nose, broken jaw, broken cheekbones. I had lost the right eye. I had neck injuries, back injuries. They did two laparotomies. And so, yeah, I was, I was in quite a terrible state. And anyway, so it took me a couple of months to recover. And I started then having to go for surgeries and the most complicated surgeries. I had been through surgeries at the time of the accident, of course, but, but I was left with the, the devastating issue to basically reconstruct the face. And this would take a lot longer than, than the rest of the injuries that I had. So I had to do it in a step-by-step process. I had different artificial prosthetics implanted. And the fourth artificial prosthetic that was implanted was in my sixth year of facial reconstructions. It was done by a maxillofacial surgeon. And once I recovered from that, I went to a plastic surgeon. He had to release some scars that were forming onto this prosthetic that had been implanted. And two weeks after that surgery, I always tell people the same story. I went shopping. I went into the store. I came out. I got into my car. I felt this moisture on my face. And so I pulled down the rear view mirror and I saw moisture coming down and it was just sort of a whole lot of pus, you know, fluid that was running down my face. And I just, you know, completely stressed out. I, I didn't know what was happening to me. And so I called the plastic surgeon's offices and I said, you know, I don't really know what to do. What should I be doing? And they said, well, it sounds like you potentially might've been infection. So come into emergency and we can take it from there. And I was admitted to hospital. They did an emergency, what they called a debridement and a re reconstructive surgery um, to get rid of this infection. And I was discharged. But two weeks later, the infection came back again. And it looked even worse this time. So I was readmitted. They did another reconstructive surgery, did debridement again. So basically, debridement is where they remove what looks like infection from the actual prosthetic. They clean it. And then they did the reconstructive surgery to fix up the tissue that had been eaten away by this infection. And two weeks later, the infection came back again. So 
Then what happened, I started going to different doctors. So it would go from the plastic surgeon to the ENT surgeon to the maxillofacial surgeon, trying to figure out what the best route you know, was to go to either salvage the prosthetic or to keep me going through these surgeries and keep me on different antibiotics. You know, And each time that I saw a doctor for a different opinion, I was being prescribed antibiotics. And each time that I was going through surgery, I was being prescribed antibiotics. So eventually, 11 months down the line, I um, I went into surgery, which was now, it was a sinus drainage, my second one uh, with the ENT surgeon. And the plastic surgeon said he was working in the same hospital at that time as the ENT surgeon. And he said, you know, I'm going to be in the theater next door and I'm going to pop into theater and I'm going to have a look if that infection is still on that prosthetic. And if it is, I'm going to take it out. And so I didn't really take him seriously. I thought to myself, nah, he's not going to do it. I haven't signed consent. And most of the other doctors are telling me that they can save this prosthetic. But lo and behold, when I woke up from under anesthetic, ENT surgery, this prosthetic had been removed. And I had actually built up a very good relationship with my plastic surgeon. So I wasn't angry. I was concerned. I was kind of like, why did this man take this risk on his shoulders to come into the theater and take this prosthetic out when I, you know, I'm literally could sue him now because I didn't sign indemnity forms. And so that rang alarm bells and I phoned the pathology officers and I said, you know what, just, can you just fax me, email me? Because I knew now that the prosthetic had been sent away for testing. This was the first time I'd been told it's been sent away for testing. And so they, you know, sent it through to me, they faxed it through to me. And I saw this test result that had a lot of R's and S's running down it. A lot of R's, probably about four or five S's. And at the top, MRSA. And I thought, what is this MRSA? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. And so I started Googling, you know, obviously patients turn to Dr. Google to get answers. And up came methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So I read even more. And eventually, you know, when I started seeing that this was caused by the overprescribing of methicillin or penicillin-type antibiotics, and I just completely, I mean, I just obviously freaked out because I thought, why was this not common knowledge to me? Why was this something that wasn't being explained to me as a risk factor for all these surgeries that I was going through? So by then, my face looked really unsalvageable. It looked like it couldn't be fixed at all. The doctors were looking like they'd lost hope. And of course, having this massive infection, I couldn't afford to have any more failed surgeries. So I decided to take my medical history, photos of my history, put it into a full-page Microsoft Word document. And I started emailing every single doctor I could find on the internet, not just in South Africa, but overseas as well, you know, sort of pleading for help. Can you please just give me some direction? I've got lots of different doctors telling me different opinions, and I can't afford failed surgeries anymore. So I'm looking for someone who could just give me that direction so that I can try and figure this out in one step. Because, you know, after the surgeries, they then put me onto vancomycin, but it took me a year before they could touch that area again. That's how serious it was. You know, they, they couldn't just do another surgery to fix it. And I was quite lucky because there was a, a doctor that I found working at Brigham and Women's Hospital in the US in Boston, who emailed me back and said, we actually, we're willing to give you a Skype consultation. Now, what made him very special was the fact that he worked with the face transplant team at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So he, you know, and he was a craniofacial surgeon. So he was very, very well established and he knew, you know, he said he saw cases like mine all the time. And so we had this teleconsultation, which back in 2011, this is now we're talking 10 years ago, having a, you know, telehealth consultation was a big thing. Um, and he said, you know, you need a zygomatic osteotomy, you need little foreign objects as possible. So a zygomatic osteotomy is where they cut the bone, they avoid foreign objects, so no more. I had alloplastic, that's what became infected. And obviously, having so many other prosthetics in my face, it wasn't handling it well. So anyway, so he said, go off and now find a doctor that mimics exactly what I said, which is exactly what I did. I drove around Johannesburg. I found, I saw a couple of doctors until I found one professor that was close up the road from me and he mimicked his advice. And Professor Johan Reinecke was his name, very well-renowned professor. So we did the zygomatic osteotomy. The infection did come back this time, we thought, in the bone. 
So, and on top of that, an allergy to one of the topical antibiotics that I was taking as well called Chloramex. So it's a topical antibiotic that you basically use for your surgical site infection, your wounds to keep it from, you know, bacteria getting in. Then he, he had to rotate different antibiotics and I had to report back into him sort of every week. He kept me under very close observation. He taught me infection prevention control. He taught me, you know, so he'd say to me, listen, if you take your antibiotic, make sure that you take it at equal intervals. And when I mean that, when I say that, what I mean is set your alarm for five in the morning if it's due at five. If you've got to take it three times a day, do it eight hourly. You know, don't give the bacteria a 20 minute window um, because otherwise they will, they will mutate again. So I did that. I followed strict instructions. We worked together. And the final result of the three months was that I could take this iPad off my face. I could take glasses off my face. I could uncover my face because for that full 10 years, I literally had to live behind some sort of covering. I couldn't go into public because I was almost scary for children or scary for other people, you know, and it was like breath of life for me, <laughs> you know, that I could do this. So we finally, we finally got over this, this infection. So, um, so yeah, so that's basically my story of how I, 10 years later, decade of it, how I, I overcame these injuries and, and drug-resistant infections. That's a very powerful story. Long, long time dealing with something that it wasn't able to be determined why this infection kept coming back. You mentioned that when you got the first result of the panel for your prosthetic, you saw a panel of resistance and sensitivity for certain antibiotics and then MRSA on the top. And it was something that you were not familiar with. It was something that you have not heard before. I assume that the fact that this was so important for someone's health, like your health, and you have not heard about it, is what led you to spend more and more time shining light in this issue. And ultimately, you became a patient advocate and work directly with AMR communication work. How was that road for you, changing from your professional career to something that is so deeply rooted from an experience you had? You know, it was a strange thing because my professional background, I studied graphic design and I studied fine art. And I started a small business in marketing and advertising. I was I was a quite a big entrepreneur. I was big into entrepreneurship. And so during the time I had this company for 20 years. As I said, it was a small, it was a small business. But during my whole journey, being in that field, being in marketing and being in advertising and design. I started to audit and analyze the communication that was being given to me. <laughs> and so I guess it just struck a chord. You know, it struck a chord for me. Certain things like, wow, wasn't it on the pharmaceutical packaging? You know, why do they only put, for example, complete the course on the outside of the box? Or, you know, at that point in time, was where was the discussions between me and my doctor? Because communication goes beyond just a poster or a flyer or, you know, broadcast media, it literally goes to the point of care where you have that discussion with your doctor, because there's so much trust, you know, be between you. So yes, I think, like I said, the passion, the passion for me was communication is not a difficult thing to do. And, and again, going back to that word that I keep using, why was it not common knowledge? I mean, in marketing circles, what that's probably the first thing you want to do is develop common knowledge with people. So, for example, and I use this over and over and over again, if if we look at back in the 1960s, 1970s, when people, uh, my mother was a good case of this. She used to live in Durban in South Africa. She used to suntan with cooking oil. <laughs> And this was before, you know, the common knowledge about using sunscreen was around, right? Mm -hmm. And when that started emerging, okay, you know, if you, if you go into the sun, you can get literally different types of cancers. And she actually did. She got melanoma in her 40s, you know. So could it have made a difference if that marketing, if that communication was different, if we had known better back then? Um, for her to have said, well, you know, I better not put cooking oil on myself. I better get in the sun and put sunscreen on. Yeah, and so the same thing, you know, it's that common knowledge. Where is the common knowledge about antibiotics? So in other words, hey, you know, if my doctor says to me that I mustn't double dose in the morning because I'm going to overexpose the bacteria to the antibiotics, therefore put myself at risk of resistance, you know, like I said, that is what builds up common knowledge. So that was missing for me. You know, and as I say, it was just it was just a 
I guess I felt like I was in a position because nothing else was happening at that point in time. When I started advocating was 2013. There was no there was no mass marketing. There was not a lot of discussions going online about it. And so I said, well, you know what? I'm going to step up because this needs to change now. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about what does your patient advocacy work look like? And what is it that you do day in, day out? So, yeah, I mean, I do a whole lot of different things. Obviously, I work in different realms. I work in, you know, your general raising of awareness and education. And I also work in research, medical research. For example, I've co-authored a couple of publications already with researchers. The one was focused on surgical pathways. And then I also work in policy. So I work with the World Health Organization on the Strategic Technical Advisory uh, Committee for Antimicrobial Resistance. I also work with the APRIA Hospital Acquired Infections Ministerial Committee in the UK. Yeah, I, I believe that working with these different research groups, you know, is very important. And I advocate about that quite extensively because, you know, we as patient advocates can come forward and, and you know, and so on and try to change things. But it really change happens when we work with the people that have the power to help us do that. Mm -hmm. You know, so so that's what I do in a nutshell. So talking about change and progress in AMR, how do you experience that patient advocacy work helps drive this change that is needed in AMR? You know, going back to sort of when we talk about research and when we talk about, you know, it could even be the corporate organizations that are working in AMR, the patient experience is so important because it brings a practical side of things, you know, to the picture. So, you know, we, we can keep talking about AMR like it's a, like it's a theory, you know, as long as we, we are all patients, don't get me wrong, because we all take antibiotics. But I think until you really, your life depends on it. And until you suffer the consequences, you lose somebody. I was a patient before this happened to me, but it woke me up in such a sense that I said, hang on, this is real. You know, so it's bringing the reality to the forefront of really hearing patient stories and and knowing what they, what they go through on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I think if I use my own cases as an example, I don't have a rare disease. I haven't had cancer. I had a car accident and that could happen to anybody. Anybody could lose their leg to an infection, you know, if they get the wrong type of bacteria in their body. Yeah, as I say, like, I think it brings really the practical side of it. And I think politicians and all these, like I say, decision makers really don't get it when it's on a piece of paper, you know, as much as they do from hearing really in-depth stories about how people have suffered, mm -hmm. you know, from their losses. Talking about the stories and the experiences with patients, you, you are an example of a patient that went through all of these. There is a lot of people around the world and we are always talking about how it's important to shine light on these stories. But I can expect that talking about something so deeply personal as, as the story you just told us doesn't come easy for a lot of people. So what is your experience working with other patients and do they want their stories heard? How can we overcome those challenges if it's hard for them to share their stories? I think there are different dimensions to that. And when I say that, I think that, number one, it's not easy for everybody to share their story. Absolutely, because it's, it is a very, very personal thing. You're right. And I will say, from my own perspective, I've had some stages, very big stages, where I've been in tears. Because it's just been too overwhelming for me, you know, to talk and to show myself at my worst and to be televised at my worst. You know, uh, it can be very, very over, over, um, overwhelming is, is the right word for it. So I think we need to be open to storytelling on different levels, you know, not just putting people on the stage but at different levels of whatever makes them comfortable, different languages. Not everybody, for example, blogging. You know, some people might say, hey, write us a blog. I work in communications. I'm a good writer, but not everybody is. You know, so, so I think it's important to really handhold sometimes. And I think also to develop capacity within patients if they really want to be an advocate to work with them and to help them empower themselves to get to that point. I had that, I had the wonderful opportunity of applying for different scholarships. And one of the scholarships I was very fortunate to get was the e-patient scholarship at Stanford University Medicine X, where they worked with me 
to help me do my stage presentations, you know, and of course, then I worked with the other e-patient scholars as well and saw their experiences and how they were sharing their stories. So as I say, I think we need to be mindful of that and also different things as well. You know, I think now with also the airlines opening up, not everybody can travel. Some people are very ill. They can't just jump on airplanes and fly overseas, uh, especially patients. What about the cost of data? They can't just get online and say, well, you know, we're going to spend an hour. And then when I talk about the multifaceted side of things, if I, for example, I'm a cancer patient and I'm taking antibiotics, I might be more versed in the scientific side of the cancer that I have rather than the antimicrobial resistance side that I have, because this is an extremely scientific topic. I've been doing this for the last nine years, you know, advocacy, going to really hectic infectious disease conferences, reading, studying, and that doesn't count. That's just my advocacy work. That doesn't count the times that I was reading and learning about it during my experience as a patient. So, I mean, if we really want to add that up, I would say we're probably looking at about 13, 14 years of knowing about AMR. Mm -hmm. So for those that are just entering the space that have just learned that they've got antibiotic resistance, for example, they need a lot of capacity building in the sense that what is okay to say that it's okay. You don't have to talk from a scientific point of view because there was also a fear that I had when I got on stage. I thought I have to sound like a scientist. And then I realized at the end, no, you don't because you're a patient. Mm -hmm. You don't, you know, you, you just need to tell it from your heart. Mm -hmm. How can we help patients in a better way? I've been thinking for a while, you know, the big role that patient organizations have to support patients in a myriad of different diseases and health problems that they might encounter. But I feel like for AMR, because as you were uh, commenting, you know, it's normally also associated with other issues like cancer patients might also suffer from AMR. Traffic accident patients might also suffer from AMR. Since it seems like it's always kind of together with something else. We don't have this kind of patient organizations targeted to AMR in particular. Do you feel like this would help or if it's better that it's applied within other kind of patient organizations? I definitely think it would help, but I think partnerships are key. I think that each patient organization that knows their disease well, so for example, let's go back again to cancer, rare disease and so on, they would know what those patients need because it's such a it's such a very complicated topic. And you know, so so what I mean by that is, for example, you know, if we had to design or co-create a flyer for AMR that was generic. Uh, that you left in the doctor's room. I always feel that it would be better to somehow work with the different charities and get them to include something that is personalized for that particular patient in their own brochures, you know, not just leave a generic brochure there. I think they would be much more powerful because, you know, if you're going to the doctor for, like I say, urinary tract infection or uh, your your child has ear infection or whatever, you know, you, you're more likely to pick up that flyer and maybe the antibiotic flyer, but more likely to pick up the one that's targeting you in that sense, where something could be spoken about, you know, talked about a little bit about how that antibiotic resistance can be a risk in that particular situation. Mm -hmm. So in an ideal world, like I say, it's working with those charities, working with those people because they know what they need. They know cystic fibrosis is a very good example. They know what they, how they experience, you know, when they need antibiotics, why they need antibiotics. TB again, TB brochures would be, have to have that written separately, you know, personalized for that particular patient. So as I say, yeah, we, we are missing those charities for AMR. Um, it's something that I'm working on at the moment as well, is a patient-focused AMR charity. And, and like I say, my vision is to work with other charities. It's not to, not to work independently, it's to work with others. I, I agree with you. It's a very, very interesting thought that, you know, there's also already a lot of capacity built around those patients that might become affected from AMR because they have comorbidities or they're suffering from other issues. There's capacity already built there. And also it makes it much more powerful when it's targeted to them. They can see themselves represented in those communications, in those stories being told. And it's not as, I would say, separated or talking about something so scientific as you were mentioning as AMR, but you can put it in the context that they can feel 
listen to, they can feel like someone is talking to them in particular, right? That's, I would imagine, very powerful and it's a very uh, good strategy to get the information across, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Because I think, I think you know, in general, if you were to generalize antibiotic resistance communication, for example, it would be, you know, don't share your antibiotics with others, you know, make sure you take it at equal intervals, you know, that sort of thing. Is that enough, as I say, to give to a TB patient for them to understand the risks or should it be more in depth, you know, so, mm-hmm. so just to kind of reiterate on that. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. That's a very, very good thought. I hope it resonates with people listening to the podcast that, you know, you are working with particular patients and you can tailor the communications on AMR to that particular patient. In, yeah, it's, it's great. As you said, you've been working or been involved in this area for 15 years, up to 15 years. I'm very interested in knowing how have you seen the field of patient advocacy in AMR changing over time? It's definitely expanding and that's so exciting. You know, when I started, I was one of the only ones online, (laughs) you know, talking about antibiotic resistance and that would include some of the doctors because I think, honestly, if I had to, I mean, I'm just talking about online now, obviously, I don't know what's been going on behind the scenes with, you know, with everybody, but, but on social media and on the internet, I saw a very big expansion in conversations directly after the UN high level meeting in 2016 because I actually had organized a tweet chat around that time, just before they had the meeting. And I'd invited a couple of healthcare professionals to to come and join. I couldn't find any patient advocates. They were talking about it, really. I found one, Mary Millard, who was in the USA, online advocating about it. You know, you, you sometimes you find patient stories, but they're written by other people. Or they, you know, they're not, it's not the patient themselves that are advocating. But yeah, I've definitely seen, I'm seeing an expansion and I think I've also seen an expansion in funding starting to go into patient public engagement and involvement, which is brilliant because that is what we really need. You know, we don't have, you know, they talk about the antimicrobial stewardship team, the multidisciplinary team. We talk about all the different stakeholders, including the cleaners, including the nurses, including the admin staff, but we need to add the patient. The patient is part of that AMS team. And so that's why I say I'm so excited because we need to know what the missing ingredient is. You know, why, why, when you are in the hospital, how do we curb that infection spread as somebody that we don't see all the time? Well, when you're in hospital, you only see your doctor say, or your nurses or say, depending on how sick you are, depending on which ward you're in, a small percentage of the time. The rest of the time, let's say you're in a ward where you have full capacity, but you've just had a small operation. Or you might have your laptop with you, your mobile phone and so on, and you become an infection risk to yourself. You know, so that's why it's important to include the patients so that they understand things, including infection prevention control. So important. It's almost like when you get on an airplane and you've got your safety measures in front of you on the food tray in front of you. When you go into hospital, that's how you need to be prepped. You know, I've just reached hospital. Infection prevention controls by the safety measures. It's almost like knowing where the emergency doors are on an airplane. You know, you are part of the team. You are part of the crew. If this plane crashes, you are part of the crew in the case of preventing infection in this hospital. So, yeah, I hope that kind of <laughs> gives a bit of an explanation. Or Yeah. Yes, that's a very good analogy to make clear that as a patient, there are some things that we can know and we can take care of as well. And being part of that team that prevents that things get worse. So I, I get the feeling that this is something that you would like to see more of, more work involving patients into the stewardship programs and the stewardship actions and implementation. Is there anything else on uh, your dream wish list when it comes to what you would like to see coming up and working more of in the field of AMR? Yeah, actually, you know what you asked me earlier on what I was working in already. And um, one of the things I've also worked in and I'm starting to work more in is medical education. I think that would be very important is to actually, you know, work with patients to um, to see how the education curriculum could be improved, you know, with how AMS uh, teams work. And yeah, I think, like I say, I think that we would be one of the biggest things, you know, and really just appreciating or understanding that, you know, how, how important patients are, you know, at the end of the day, in terms of the patients and consumers, because if we don't just take it from a human health perspective, but patients and consumers, how, how common knowledge is important to, to us driving change. Because if there's only a handful of us 
you know, trying to address the issue of antimicrobial resistance, we're not going to succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a thought that I have, and I have talked to some colleagues, uh, now that you brought up also consumers, you know, as consumers are seen as a group of people that have ultimately, you know, a lot of power because they have the choice, right? And Comparing it with patients, a lot of times people see patients as a, as a passive in the health system. A bit, you know, you have an, an infection or whatever other health problem, and then you have doctors that, you know, know what's happening to you and have potential solutions for it. But the patient has a little bit of more of a passive role. And I think it's important to, to give the patient agency as well through education, through uh, knowledge and information. And as you say, that they become also part of the team of what's happening to them and how are we going to solve the problem that they have. So I like that you brought the analogy, you know, patients and consumers need to be included in, in this work and in, into how we get the things to a better place and what are the actions to take to solve the problems that we have. So I think that's a beautiful point to bring up to people out there, you know, give agency to your patients when it comes to the topic of resistance and provide the proper education and the proper knowledge that they need to take decisions as well, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, look, I'll give you an example. Like the other day I was prescribed a course of antibiotic for UTI because obviously I work in the field, I always kind of listen to conversations. And, you know, it, so it was my GP that kind of said, you know, I don't want to give you a course of antibiotics, but I'm going to prescribe them. And if it gets worse, then, you you know, you can take them. So it didn't, what was missing was that, you know, I'm not prescribing it because, because of the risks of resistance that was missing in the discussion. So, you know, and as you say, yes, it goes right down to the consumer level. You know, we are all patients. We are all consumers. We are both. And, you know, what, what food you eat has certain foods, certain meats have carry the same risks. And so we have the right to be informed. As a consumer, we have, and we need to push on that. As consumer advocates, we have the right to be informed, to know what is going into our bodies, what are we at risk of. And so true, you know, for, for patients being treated, that we should have the right to information to make informed decisions and to avoid the risks of, at any point, these antibiotics not working for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely the power of, of knowledge, basically, not to take it away from anybody when they're faced with a challenge and with a risk, like we're talking here. Um, unfortunately, we are almost running out of time, but I wouldn't want to finish up this interview without opening the stage for you to tell us something that is on the works, something that you want people to have an eye or an ear for of what's coming up and what is it that you are excited for the near future on your work. Yeah, I mean, we, I'm busy working on a charity at the moment, and I'm really excited about that because that's all going to be, you know, patient-focused and particularly focusing on advocacy development capacity building because I think that that is a missing ingredient. I, I mean, of course, there would be information that we would be disseminating, but, but like I said, it's really to handhold people and to show them, you know, what can be achieved as advocates in this space, regardless of whether they've been in advocacy for many years in other realms, or if they are uh, you know, new to the, um, to the advocacy space. The Watch the Space, the name of the charity is called the AMR Narrative. So yeah. Good narratives are very important because it really can make a difference of how people get the information and you know, increase their knowledge on a topic. So that's a beautiful name, AMR Narrative. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Vanessa, for being with us today. This is a topic that we've been wanted to bring up to our podcast for a really long time because we talk to a lot of professionals working in different aspects of AMR and we're always talking about patients in one way or another and we were thinking, you know, their voice it's very important getting to know what they need, getting to know what their experiences are, getting to know what the shortcomings are because the patients are the ones that would have the experience with that. We might think of what they are going through, but it would never be the same until we really hear from them. So I really thank you for taking the time to be with us today, telling us your story, telling us the amazing work that you have done and you are doing and you will be doing. And I really hope that people, you know, tune in to your Twitter, to your website, to your blog and get to know what, what you are doing and what you will be doing. Thank you so much, Vanessa. You're welcome, Eva. Thank you so much for the interview. Thanks. Thank you. 
Welcome back, everyone, from this great interview. As you might hear, I still sound a little bit weird. It's not uh, still from COVID, but I moved from COVID to heavy allergies now that the spring is uh, shooting up. So uh, forgive me for, for this a little bit of touch-up voice. Um, but Jenny, what did you think of uh, Vanessa's story and Vanessa's work? Uh, for me, it was a very, very inspiring interview and something that, as you said, we wanted to do for a long time. But I'm very curious about your insights from listening to this. Yeah, like you said, we've we've talked about wanting to include this aspect as well, like the patient aspect and hearing these patient stories. And of course, they're definitely told best by the patients who experienced it. And I think Vanessa's story was just perfect for what we for what we were hoping to hear i mean hoping to hear sounds wrong because it's, it's a it's a tragic story and it's full of all of the hardships she's experienced but i was very inspired hearing how she moved forward from this how she took this really tough experience and moved on and progressed and has kind of found the what was missing when she experienced this and kind of tried to fill the gaps for other people as well I think it's a very um, telling story in the sense that like AMR usually isn't maybe the reason why you end up in a healthcare setting. And, and that was definitely her case as well. She was in a car accident. Like she said, that's something that can happen to anyone. It, it's a horrible traumatic thing that can happen to anyone. And you think about that being the thing you need to recover from. And we've made these great advances in medicine that you can recover from these things. We can work on building our bodies back up. But AMR is kind of always there, like this could always be a problem. And in her case, it sounded, of course, like a very difficult thing to get through. It took her, what, decades to to really kind of recover to get out of the problem. Um, if I understood right, I might have misunderstood the timeline in her story a bit. But it's it was very um, gripping in that sense that like it, it's not just about what happens to you, but this can this is kind of an added le level on top of another trauma in many cases. And yeah, I I think the fact that uh, she as a patient, together with her background in advertising and communications, kind of gave her this understanding that things regarding resistance maybe weren't as good as they should and as they could. You know, um, the fact that she realized, hey, this is that's happening to me. Why I hear about this concept so late? Why there is not an open, fluid communication about the risks that antibiotic entails? Why did she have to learn about it when it was so late down the line of getting a recurrent infection and not really knowing what was happening? So I think a lot of people perhaps that go through these kind of problems where they get into the healthcare system and then they get the hospital-acquired infections and they have problems treating them not having the background of what is common knowledge, what is co fluid communication, what is good communication strategies, maybe they don't realize that things actually could be better. And I think Vanessa's yeah. strength here is that she was able to see, hey, something here is missing, something actually needs to change. And then using her background, her knowledge, was able to pour all that hard work and energy and struggle that she had through her story and then try to make things better and try to make it better for the people that will come after and will have to also go through these these challenging situations in the healthcare. Yeah. I was touched also by she specifically pointed out, you know, she she had good relationship with her doctors at the time and she talked about this sort of relationship with healthcare professionals and it kind of led to open up, you know, like more of these conversations. And she talked also now about a conversation with her, her GP regarding antibiotics that like we can have more of this communication that we really can improve that. I mean, maybe from especially, I guess, from the clinical side where you and I come from or the preclinical, I mean, the, the before like the really lab bench scientific side, we maybe struggle to see some of the kinds of conversations that we can have with people. But I think Vanessa had the advantage of really being able to look back and kind of say like, you know, this was an opportunity, maybe this was somewhere I could have, it could have come up. And she mentioned now with the, her talking to her GP now, you know, maybe didn't explain the why all the time and what was the thought process behind things. I think that's a great skill that she had that really can, has, that can give such a big uh, benefit, mm -hmm. especially as a patient advocate. I also really enjoyed hearing you guys talk about how to bring more patient stories forward and some of the difficulties, some of the challenges that we should consider. And 
I mean, of course, it's understandable that this, like we've talked about before, this is a very private, difficult thing for a lot of people to talk about. And I think Vanessa made a very good point that, you know, we've got to kind of come to people's level. We have to acknowledge that, you know, language might be difficult. How we tell the story, standing on a stage and talking about it might be very difficult. And I think as a listener, and this isn't just about AMR, but, you know, listening to survivors of different kinds of trauma in general, we have to acknowledge that it's not going to be like a... (laughs) Hollywood actor level performance on a stage is really unreasonable to expect from somebody mm-hmm. who's trying to tell something so personal to them. And you have to be very respectful and very understanding. And like she said, you know, if there's a difficulty with language, you know, we have to help. We have to give all the kinds of help that they want, that they need, that they request, that they didn't know exist, you know, try to be very helpful. I, I thought this was a great interview. I don't want to say too much more because I, I just want to let her, her words stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, the interview has the weight in its own right. There's not much more that we can say. I just, I really appreciate that she took the time to tell the story once more because, of course, yeah. it's never easy to go through again what happened and, and explain, you know, the struggles and the hurdles through it. But I think her story and, and the fact that there is people that are willing to do it can also encourage other patients to talk about their experiences. I know off the record after we got off the mic, I was talking to her about some more personal stories with my family and my mom. And she appreciated this like, yeah, you see that this is the conversations that we want to start. We want people to share, you know, maybe not in the big stage, maybe not to a bigger audience, but bring people together that they can share what they have been going through in antibiotic treatment, in uh, other higher healthcare issues, maybe uh, surgery, recurrent infections you know like that people see this is something that people can talk about that they don't have to feel alienated they don't have to feel that is a one-off thing that happened to them but it's something that they can you know bring to a community being smaller or being bigger and that's the beauty the beauty of it I also want to mention that I really like as well that she talked about the role that patients can have on antimicrobial stewardship and giving them you know the power of like knowledge and being part of the team that mitigates the risks that come with being through the healthcare system and the potentiality Mm -hmm. for infections and resistance as well and I think that's also very powerful coming from someone that was a patient and a patient advocate to try to find ways where we can help the patients to be knowledgeable and also be part of all the actions that are needed to be taken to reduce the risk of this thing happening. So that was very beautiful. And I really appreciate that she is actively working on this a lot as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, as you said, maybe listen to the interview again. It was great. <laughs> I This is one that I'm going to recommend to a lot of people. And I think, yeah, there's not much more to say from our side. And I think with that, we can perhaps move to the new section where we are also going to talk perhaps a little bit about stewardship as well and knowledge so it's a little bit related so let's move to the news welcome to the news for this month today we're going to start with an article that actually our interview guest this month is a co-author it's called the development of and user feedback on a board and online game to educate on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship in the journal antibiotics and it was published on the 1st of May, 2022. Mm-hmm. Ava, could you tell us a little bit more about this article? Yeah, this uh, article is very timely, both because of Vanessa being part of the of the author list of this the paper, but also because we recently talked about games. Yeah. So it's uh, kind of on the on the topic of things we've been bringing up, and. I, I really enjoyed it because, you know, I love alternative ways of teaching that are not just sitting on a lecture or watching a YouTube video or reading an article, even though we do it day in, day out. But uh, the idea of this work is to, to develop and put forward a game, both in a tabletop, traditional game, but also on an online version, to teach concepts on antimicrobial stewardship, in particular to healthcare workers from doctors, nurses, pharmacists, the medicine dispensers, but also cleaners or even students that are going to be working in the in the healthcare setting as well. The cool thing about this game or this paper in particular is that they are very detailed on how did they work to bring this game forward. From the very beginning of the basis of like why do we need this to creating it, bringing it forward and evaluating it with a feedback user uh, survey. 
the goal of the game is to engage communities in joint learning. So people don't have to learn by themselves alone, but it's more like a group activity. And the thing is that a lot of game assessments has been done looking at the knowledge acquisition of the games, but there is still a need to try to see if through games we can both enhance skills, like practical skills, uh, but also change behaviors and attitudes towards the way the people work. And, and this game is kind of looking into that, although this first approximation of seeing how it works is more about what people learn and if they think it's useful, I think time is needed to see if skills are acquired and if behaviors are changed. But it's a, it's a first approximation to this work and that's what they are really going after with this game. In order to make the game kind of work they work with a company that works professionally on developing games for uh, educational purposes it's called focus games and they were careful to include the most important elements of making a game that will result in knowledge acquisition and skills acquisition etc which is having some competition and goals having clear rules and we know this is very important actually giving the um, player a choice so this part of agency mm -hmm. that if you remember we talked back when we were talking with Celia about her game as well it has to have some element of challenge as well so you have to challenge the players in order to ignite this knowledge acquisition and it also includes the second part which is coaching debriefing and feedback so the players can see how they did also some performance assessment and then having very clear and defined mechanics of how they work games and that together with clear rules mm -hmm. makes the game easy to be played and, and enjoyed Another cool thing about this game development is that it was done together in collaboration with the target audience. And I think this is very strong because you are developing a game for a very specific set of people with very specific goals. You want to work with them to see what is it that they need to know. Right? So you work with the target audience that is already knowledgeable in the topic and you try to find the best way to present these concepts through the game mechanics and through the game storyline. In the paper, they talked really nicely about how did they work defining the objectives, how did they develop the storyboard, how did they did the prototype and the testing, and then the last stage of refining, reworking the whole thing and then launching it. And the cool thing is that they didn't just do this game, they actually played it in a big tournament uh, during the Wallentine Microbial Awareness Week back in November, on 24th of November. And during that tournament, then they sent the survey links to the people that played and they got results. They actually got people from 13 different countries across four regions, including both high and low and middle income country regions. And I have to say that the people that contributed to making the game were also having stakeholders from high and low and middle income countries, which is really nice because we know antimicrobial stewardship and infection prevention and control and concepts about AMR are equally important enough more in high-income country settings and low-income country settings. So it's something that you will have to look contextually a little bit. What is yeah. it that we need to teach and how do we teach it in the different regions and what is it that we actually need? Overall, the people were really happy. Of course, they didn't have enough people to do a heavy statistic analysis of, you know, how did the game go? But in general, they were very positive. They enjoy partaking it. They will actually enjoy spending more time on it and having some time to explore the game. Uh, one thing that I liked is that a lot of people commented that they really love getting a One Health perspective on antimicrobial stewardship because a lot of times we talk about antimicrobial stewardship and, you know, stewardship use of antibiotics when it comes to the human healthcare sector. But this game seems to have this element of how Prevention, correct use of antibiotics and mitigating risk of resistance also includes the One Health concept, which is not just uh, limited to the human health, but also including the environment and uh, animal health as well. So it seems like it's very complete and it has a lot of different aspects to it to, to learn about antimicrobial stewardship. So it's, it sounds like a really, really cool project. Yeah, it also, I mean, you've covered most of the bases, but I also really enjoyed reading some of the, the survey responses, how much people talked about like, well, you know, we could play this in the, the stewardship team at work. Like, I mean, there's a lot of healthcare professionals that were the primary audience here and that was playing it. And like, there was a few people commenting like, oh, we can discuss this and this. And like, it seemed to really open up a new level of discussion, which I think is a huge part of this. It's not just about learning goals. It's not just about, you know, 
the more concrete steps, it's about opening up like the discussion more in general and including more people. And I think that was something that seemed to work well. There was definitely positive comments about it. And I think something that they should be pretty proud of. <laughs> definitely. Uh, we, of course, will leave the link to a website because you can do an online tour of the game and there's some demonstrations as well. And I think the game is available for purchase, both the physical game and also the online game for remote teams as well. And I I just think it's a lovely initiative. It's yeah. It's a great way to, as you say, not only learn, but also ignite the conversation about a particular topic and now more and more antimicrobial stewardship programs are being implemented in many different countries throughout the implementation of the national action plans on AMR so I think this could be a really good tool that they can use while training while talking about this in the different healthcare facilities and, and systems definitely yeah definitely so with that let's go on to our next article for this month Ava do you want to introduce the article for us Yes, for sure. Now we change completely topics and we come and we talk about something that sometimes can get a little bit confusing. So that's why we decided to bring this article titled Modulating the Evolutionary Trajectory of Tolerance Using Antibiotics with Different Metabolic Dependencies. And this article was published in the journal Nature Communications on 9th of May 2022. So Jenny, can you Tell us and uh, enlighten us about, you know, antibiotic tolerance and what does it mean to use antibiotics that are dependent on the metabolic state of cells? Yes. So to be honest, this is very confusing for me as well sometimes. And there's several different terms. So we talk about antibiotic resistance. Then we generally mean the ability of bacteria to avoid being killed by developing some genetic inheritable trait that makes them you know, they can survive a higher level of antibiotics without being killed. So one trait that we then see is that they have an increase in what we call the MIC or minimum inhibitory concentration, meaning that it requires a higher concentration of antibiotics to kill the bacteria. If we move on to other things, there's something that's called antibiotic tolerance and antibiotic persistence. And this is where I get really confused. I have a hard time saying what the difference between these are. But in general, in these cases, we're not talking about bacteria that can survive in higher antibiotic concentrations. There has not been a change in the concentration of antibiotics that they can survive. So the MIC doesn't change? Yeah, the MIC does not change. The minimum inhibitory concentration does not change. However, these bacteria will survive in a certain antibiotic concentration that they should maybe be killed in, basically. And this can be in large part because of the fact that many antibiotics are targeting growing cells cells that are actively metabolizing and growing and these kinds of processes in the bacteria that don't happen when the bacteria are just, you know, surviving. <laughs> I guess is what I say, when they're when they're what we call metabolically dormant or have a lower metabolic state, is very dependent on what the antibiotic is targeting, how these things will affect. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the central parts of this paper. And I mean I'm I'm kind of skimming over now the difference between persistence and tolerance because this is not something that I'm really great at talking about. But this paper, what they're looking at, in other words, is a phenomenon called antibiotic tolerance where bacteria survive without having like a resistance to the antibiotic. They survive because of the trait of the antibiotic, how it works in the cell, and that some cells are not being affected by the antibiotic. Mm -hmm. To try to keep it as simple as I can with my flawed understanding of the topic. So what was the goal of the paper and what did it do? So the paper was generally trying to look at how the sort of tolerance is evolved. So what kind of leads to this antibiotic tolerance? Because they also see that this tolerance can be kind of carried on in other generations. You can see this increase in tolerance, so more cells that are surviving, basically. And they were looking at with different antibiotics. Like I said, different antibiotics target different things. So they grouped these antibiotics into something called strongly dependent on metabolism, SDM antibiotics. So these are ones that you see a lot of tolerance for. The ones that they use here are ciprofloxacin and ampicillin, which are two antibiotics that target like growing cells, like I said. And they also use what they call weakly dependent on metabolism antibiotics, WDM antibiotics. In these cases, I'm going to point out most clearly gentamicin as an antibiotic that I think some people might recognize that isn't as actively targeting growing cells. 
So basically what they looked at is, you know, they're basically evolving the cells like in presence of these antibiotics and saying, you know, do we see tolerance evolving, which they do see in presence of these strongly dependent on metabolism antibiotics. I'm just going to say SDM and WDM. And I, I know like in syntax, it doesn't really work that great, but that's the way they write this paper. So I'm just going to go with the phrases they use. So these SDM antibiotics, they'd see tolerance evolving, which they don't see with these WDM antibiotics. They did some confirmation studies to see that this it's really tolerance that they're observing. And they also saw is that cells that have evolved tolerance to the SDM antibiotics, they're not more tolerant to the WDM antibiotics. So this isn't something that can be carried along. It seems like a trait of being tolerant to SDM antibiotics. However, cells that were tolerant to ampicillin, so one SDM antibiotic, were also tolerant for the other antibiotic, ciprofloxacin. So it's traits that can kind of be carried between the antibiotics of the same class, but not into the other WDM group. So then they find this deletion of a gene, which leads to a sort of inheritable tolerance. So it's carried along with this deletion in this gene. Uh, this gene was called NHAA, and it's a sodium proton antiporter in bacteria. So basically, it, it balances out levels of uh, sodium in the cell and has an effect on the pH of the cell. I'm not going to go too much into this because it gets a bit complicated now, but this deletion in the cell changes the cellular homeostasis, so kind of the balance in the cell, and triggers suppression of the metabolism. So basically what we're saying, like we said, it, less growth of the cells, less activity in the cells. And this then leads to an increase in tolerance uh, because these antibiotics are targeting these processes in the cell. They also saw with this deletion that there's an increase in something called the stress response in the cell, which is something that, I mean, the name kind of tells itself there's responses in the cell due to stresses, uh, as well as biofilm formation, so that these cells kind of go into a state which, among other things, biofilms can help protect against stressors from the outside. So really kind of what this leads into and where it becomes, they kind of try to bring it into a clinical aspect, because clearly these kinds of issues can have an effect clinically. I mean, if you're, if cells aren't dying with antibiotic treatment, they can come back and keep growing when antibiotic treatment is discontinued. They actually cycled these different groups of antibiotics after each other. So what they kind of saw was, you know, if we do, say, I'm simplifying now, one day treatment of an SDM antibiotic, followed by one day treatment of a WDM antibiotic, do we see the same evolution of tolerance? And what they saw is that Yes, yeah, cycling intermittently with a WDM antibiotic prevents the evolution of tolerance. And this, depending on how long you cycle, how many days you cycle in a row of the SDM antibiotic, which leads to tolerance evolution before breaking in with a WDM antibiotic that kind of breaks off this, this evolution, it's a trade-off. So basically, mm -hmm. at some point, yes, there will be tolerance evolution, but increasing the number of cycles that are WDM antibiotics kind of help prevent this evolution. Mm -hmm. And this kind of plays into a clinical aspect because these WDM antibiotics that we talk about that aren't targeting actively growing cells and these kind of metabolism-based parts of cell growth, they tend to be more toxic to the patient. So if we're talking about clinical settings, for example, the antibiotic they use, genomycin, is known for having some toxic effects while ampicillin and ciprofloxacin, yes, they have their issues, but they're known to be pretty safe and less issues in a patient. So that's kind of one of the reasons why we've leaned towards these antibiotics. And that kind of makes sense if you think about it because they're targeting actively growing bacteria and parts of bacterial growth are more different from how, say, human cells grow. So it can be easier to really distinguish between growing bacterial cells and growing human cells rather than living cells in general mm -hmm. because of the way our cells are built up. So that's one really generalized reason why these kind of less toxic, easier to use antibiotics are also easier for the cells to develop tolerance against. Mm -hmm. Like it kind of goes together in a way. Mm -hmm. It's worth noting in this paper, this is only in vitro. They only did it in laboratory settings. They didn't do any animal experiments. They didn't do anything like that. So this is more theoretical when they're looking at the connection to treatment. And that sort of thing. It's it's a very lab model of it. I also had a little bit, and we talked about this, they looked at a couple different what they called WDM antibiotics. And some of them we were a little bit questioning why they looked at them. Because ampicillin and ciprofloxacin are more clinically relevant, I'd say. Gentamicin is as well. I had never heard of mitomycin, but it's apparently a cytotoxic, meaning it kills cells. I mean, you said it was used for cancer treatment as well, which kind of goes to show how... how um, toxic it can be. <laughs> Most mm -hmm. cancer treatments are toxic. Uh, that's kind of their inherent property. 
But yeah, in general, it's a very interesting article. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to go into these topics more. I really enjoyed this paper as well. And we chose it for a couple of reasons. One is because I think it's important to talk about this difference in mechanism of what we are going to call treatment survival of bacteria. Yeah. Right? <laughs> because when we talk with patients, obviously you don't want to confuse patients saying, you know, you have an antibiotic tolerant strain or you have an antibiotic persistent strain. I mean, for a patient, resistance would just mean, you know, the treatment doesn't succeed as it should, right? Yes. Be it because a higher MIC of the bacterial strain genetic inheritable trait or not, whatever the treatment is failing, right? But it's important for us in the preclinical stage, people developing antibiotics, people understanding how these cells can survive treatment, to understand what are the reasons behind it. Is it what kind of genetic change? Is it a particular mechanism within the cell? Is it a general mechanism that is dependent on the metabolism? And I think it's really cool to understand these deep concepts you know but it can be confusing to understand what is an antibiotic resistant trait versus a tolerant trait versus a persistent trait looking into this and trying to you know get a little bit more knowledgeable on it i found a opinion article in the nature microbiology reviews which is really cool it talks about these three concepts and what the difference are with really nice diagrams and images so anybody that wants to get the mind a little bit more clear. We're going to leave that link also below. I should probably read it. <laughs> and I think also an important thing about tolerance where is that tolerance can lead to resistance as well, right? Yeah. So we want to prevent the evolution of tolerance as much as we can. So we can also prevent the evolution of resistance thereafter. And tolerance generally is a problem, not so much for acute infections, but for people that have persistence, chronic infections, like it could be cystic fibrosis patients as well Mm -hmm. so we need to understand these processes and these mechanisms and how perhaps personalizing treatment in a way which is what they're going at with this cycling of different WDM and SDM antibiotics right like what is it that we can do so we can prevent this evolution of the different traits that leads to treatment failure altogether right so It was very interesting for me to refresh of these concepts and these ideas and see that they are able to see, okay, how does tolerance work in this particular case? They are actually able to see the change and this leads to a different metabolic state. And it was a very teaching article for me in all these concepts as well. And of course, it's preclinical, it's all done in vitro. We have to see what would be the use of these different classes of antibiotics, new division of class of antibiotics Mm. for the practical use of them but anybody that really wants to learn a little bit more about how these processes work and what do they mean it's a good article and uh, complemented with a little bit more of of deeper knowledge of persistence resistance and tolerance as well because when i opened the paper honestly i thought tolerance and persistence was the same and they were talking about something interchangeably and then reading through more deeply i realized no, they are slightly different, even though it's a bit confusing, you know. <laughs> yeah. I knew they were different because I looked it up at some point, but I cannot remember. Like, I still now, even though we've talked about it, I'm like, can't answer that question. Because <laughs> I think we, we talked about persistence before. Right? We covered a couple of papers. We had a Sophie Helene here as well yeah, talking exactly. about persistence. So if we have talked about it before. I don't think we've talked about tolerance as much. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a yeah. good new concept to try not to bring to the table. And if you are working in preclinical, if you are working on the different mechanisms of resistance, I think it's good to have a clear understanding what the differences are with resistance. And they also even mentioned heteroresistance, which you know a lot about as well. So what they were looking that this tolerance that they were able to get in their strains was actually not resistance. It was not heteroresistance. It was not persistence, but it was actually a particular specific mechanism of tolerance. So yeah. just to be clear. I can just there. throw in there a little bit. Heteroresistance is when there's a subpopulation of the the full population that has a um, different MIC. So they are actually resistant them to uh, at a higher level to the antibiotic. And uh, my, the reason why Ava said this is because my boss works on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't personally work with it, but I hear about it a lot where I mm-hmm. work. So Exactly. And maybe just to make it even more clear, it's easier in a sense to to define a strain as resistant because you can actually have a clear 
measurable number, yes. which is this MIC, right? Whereas with tolerance and persistence, you are left with looking into, okay, what's the timing to killing? Is there going to happen a killing if we continue exposing these cells to that particular concentration of antibiotic, which is not higher, but it just... Because of the metabolism, because of how the cell is behaving, that killing doesn't happen at a normal susceptible level, in, in a sense. Yeah. So I, I learn a lot through, through this <laughs> article, I have to say. But with that, I think we'll wrap up for this month. Got a nice mix of sciences in there. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully you guys have a good start to the summer and everybody gets settled. No more COVID bumps, hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, with the warm weather coming up in some parts of the world, we'll see how, how it develops. Yeah. I'm hoping at least you and I are okay for COVID for a while now that we both had it. A few, few months at least, but I hope these allergies just pass through as well, you know. Like, it's not yeah. nice to have problems breathing all the time. But with that, we hope to have you back for our next episode next month. And See you then. Bye-bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.